Would you turn with me to Luke chapter 21? Luke chapter 21, verses 25 through 38. Luke chapter 21, verses 35 or 25 through 38. Let's hear God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, dismay among nations and perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up, Lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Then he told them a parable. Behold, the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they put forth leaves, you see it and know for yourselves that summer is now near. But so you also, when you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Be on guard so that your hearts will not be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life, and that day will not come on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who dwell on the face of all the earth. But keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place, and to stand before the Son of Man. Now, during the day, he was teaching in the temple, but at evening, he would go out and spend the night on the mount that is called Olivet. And all the people would get up early in the morning to come to him in the temple to listen to him. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask that you would cause your word to be a blessing unto your people. We pray that you would bless your word and cause it to take root in our hearts. We pray that you would help us to hide up your word in our hearts that we might not sin against you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Jesus has been speaking to the disciples about the destruction of Jerusalem. He has been speaking to the crowds relating the circumstances of that destruction, the inevitability of it, and the horrible, horrendous condition of those who will be present during that time, who will see the great city raised to the ground. Now, we know that in 70 AD, uh, these things occurred. One of the best arguments within Scripture as to the truthfulness of Scripture and the youthfulness, as it were, or, or rather from our position, the, 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 uh, the, the, the age of, of, the, uh, of the Scriptures... Uh, There are some who would say that the scriptures were not written until hundreds of years after the fact. Uh, That is simply not the case. If you look at the writers of the New Testament, one thing they would raise more than any other is the destruction of the temple. If that happened or occurred in 70 AD, they would know it. They They would mention it in some way, see its apocalyptic significance, and yet it is never mentioned within the pages of the old and uh, New Testament, more relevant one, the New Testament. The truth is that the New Testament writers, uh, these letters, these epistles, these gospels, they they were written long before, or they were written uh, long before many count them as having been written. 
It's a wonderful thing to behold the truthfulness of Scripture and to see, compare its veracity to archaeological archaeological findings and and to hear and to see the truthfulness of God's word in light of recent findings and 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 understanding of Scripture. Well, the Jesus has been speaking to the disciples and relating to them that Jerusalem itself would be destroyed. Uh, Jerusalem in verse 20 in the same chapter, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Um, There are events that would happen in the life of the Israelites. There would be events that would happen in the life, uh, uh, within the lifetimes of those who were disciples. They would they would see events unfolding. They would they would understand that certain circumstances unfolding uh, before their very eyes, both within earthly governments and amongst nations, and even in the in the heavens themselves, that these were a portent of things to come. They were birth pangs, as it were, of the eventual end of all things. Uh, the disciples would hear these words of Christ, both within uh, last week's section and the earlier portion of chapter 21, and they would hear the, the section that we would uh, that we're dwelling upon this morning, and they would say that <clears throat> as they beheld things happening, stars uh, and, and, and planetary changes and changes within the observations of creation itself, uh, they would say, look at the ways in which the world around us is degenerating, is changing. And they would say, these are but birth pangs of the eventual return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus says in this passage that of all these things, uh, these uh, this generation in verse 32 will not pass away until all things take place. Now, Jesus is not saying that all these things will happen during the time of the disciples. Because he has said, in fact, earlier in the last passage, in the, in the earlier portion of this same chapter, that all these things would, would t- take place, and, and these are days of vengeance against the city of Jerusalem as judgment of God against wickedness and unbelief. But he did say, but this is not the end. And so Jesus is telling them that there are there are changes that are coming in creation, in government, uh, in, in, by way of 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 uh, the, the 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 submission to kings and the conquering of their city that will occur, and all of these things are intended as uh, the beginnings of the birth pangs of the eventual end to which God is bringing all things. This generation that Jesus is speaking to there is the first generation that would see the beginning of the coming of the kingdom of God of uh, in, in its uh, physical form, of the inauguration of the kingdom of God physically on earth. They would see the beginnings of God's preparation for the second coming of Jesus Christ. In other words, they and we are in the midst of the end times. We are in the tribulation. We are in that period of time between Christ's first coming and his second coming, between his ascension up into heaven at the right hand of God the Father and of his second coming when he comes in triumphant shout of glory and in recognition of the eternal Son of God by all of humanity. 
And so Jesus is speaking to these men, saying of both they in their humanity and we also in that same humanity, we who are part of that generation of Christians who have believed in Christ Jesus, that New Testament church that follows the Lord Jesus Christ and looks unto him. And he uses language here of, of the beginnings of things, of, of a summer drawing near, things happening, recognizing that the kingdom of God is near. All of these things are events that will happen in the life of every believer until we see Christ. We will see the world in which we live become more and more sinful, more and more uh, opposed to Christ and his kingdom, more and more disenfranchised with the church, embittered against the church, hateful of the church and the word of God. We will observe that times will change and nations will change and nation will rise against nation. That even in the heavens themselves, there will be changes to such an extent that we will say, surely, surely the Lord is coming. When, when was the last time you heard a discussion of global warming in some way and then heard the commentator say in response, surely, surely the Lord is coming. When did you hear anyone speak about what future events will unfold and or the war in Ukraine and someone respond and say, surely, surely the Lord is coming. Or how about in the midst of the rumors of Christians who are being imprisoned and broken, whose families are divided and whose children are pressed into slavery and Uyghurs who are suffering in China. And, 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 and when did you last hear a, a news correspondent say, oh, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. I don't hear that. And yet, as Christians, this should be the way in which we respond to calamity and trouble. There are events and signs common to every generation of believers. And, and don't we see them in this day and age? Don't we, don't we understand that, yes, the end is coming? When the whole world is confused and, and, and is sowing confusion actively and willfully, about the ways in which God has created man, male and female. Do we not see that the end is near? When we hear that inflation is increasing and it is becoming more and more difficult to live, and yes, that our, our environment is warming, yes, indeed it is, as is typically cyclical for God's creation, up and down and all around, there are ages of there are ice ages, there are warming ages, there are there are cycles within the creation. But we can see, we can clearly see that our world is breaking down and changing. We can see entropy. We can see. We can see nation against nation. We can see how the world is becoming closer and closer, more more along the lines of. One world, one, one leader, one ruler. We can see it. We can see the world embracing in the spirit of ungodliness and of sin. 
Can we not see and are we not led to the conclusion that what we need more than anything else is for Jesus Christ to come again? To usher in the end of the age, to bring all things to that final consuming, consummating end. There's language here in this passage this morning as Jesus shares some some details concerning the end of all things, as well as exhorting God's people about what to do. You see, prophecy is never absent of the resultant or corresponding command to live in light of that prophecy. Prophecy always dictates orthodox living. In other words, if we know what's going to happen in the future, if God reveals to us certain events about what to expect in the future, then surely he is also telling us, in light of that future, this is how you are to presently live. Prophecy is always, always inextricably, inseparably connected with godly living. If you're not living in a godly way, I would ask, well, what do you believe about the return of Jesus Christ? If you say that you believe in prophecy, and yet your life is filled with ungodliness, I would ask you, well, do you really believe what the Bible says about the return of Jesus Christ? The truth is, here in the Western world, we have very little connection to the ideas of suffering and of just the idea of Christians crying out for relief from our Savior and for the Lord to come again. If we were in Ukraine this morning, we would not be so separate or separated from such complaints and such crying out, such longing in our hearts. If we were in other places of the world, perhaps communist China, It doesn't matter really where we are or what what we are doing, but what really does matter is that we need to understand that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming again. And Jesus is using language here in this passage of the Son of Man. It's that self-designation and and, and recognition of who he is, that he himself is the one who is is identified in Daniel chapter 7. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. There are three explicit commands for believers here in this passage, for you and for me, as to how we ought to live in light of the, the, the truth that Christ is coming again. Do you see them? They're easily identified within our text. <clears throat> now, the first of which is simply prepare. Secondly, <clears throat> watch. And thirdly, pray. Prepare, watch, and pray. And so he says this at the end of verse 28. When these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. That statement is for every believer. You see, when Christ ascended into heaven and was accepted by God the Father as the 
as, as, as the righteousness of us, of his people. He ascended and he sat at the right hand of God the Father in session at his right hand, meaning that his government had now been inaugurated, that Christ himself was now reigning and ruling over all things. And so for Jesus to say this to his first, his disciples in the Gospels, it, it, it's relevant for us in that we follow in the apostolic tradition. We, we are believers as well, much as they are. And, and we too can see that events are unfolding in our world. None of us can pinpoint nor precisely say when Christ is coming again. We can only know that Jesus is coming again. That we will join him in the clouds. There will be a shout of acclamation. Trumpets will blare. The whole world will observe and see him. The wicked will cry out for the hills to fall upon them. But believers will ascend and we will be with the Lord. And so believers in every age are to do exactly what Jesus Christ says here when these things begin to take place, and they did when he ascended into the presence of the Father. Straighten up and lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Straighten up and lift up your heads. Straighten up and raise up your heads. I'll, I'll tell you, uh, posture is such an important thing, and more often than not, as human beings, our heads are down, and we, are, we have the posture of almost self-defeatism. We are often defeated by our circumstances, we're often so deeply troubled by the smallest of, of things, that the, the grain of sand that has gotten into the wheels of our machination, of our plans, of our expectations. The slightest thing provokes us and we are depressed. We are anxious. We are fearful. We are utterly confounded and turned on our heads because we are troubled and we experience trouble but the believer is, is not to be so easily undone. We are to sit up, to lift up our heads, and to look unto the Lord. It, it means that in, in the practical sense, when, when we are troubled, when, when we are uh, experiencing trouble uh, in, in all of its many various forms, and, and when we are at odds with one another or, or someone that we love and they are angry with us, or, or somehow we have sinned against the Lord, or, or now we must forgive grave and difficult sin that it is hard to get ourselves around. Straighten up and raise your heads. Prepare yourself. The truth is that the opposite is something that we are prone to. That is that we are thoughtless about our preparation and we are not prepared for the day of calamity. We are prone to this and it is perhaps a danger for God's people. One thing we need to remember is that Jesus is saying this to his disciples. Jesus is saying this to believers who are gathered around him. And so he is saying, prepare. Now, why would he say that unless we are we are prone to not be prepared, to having a lack of preparedness. And don't we really do that when we come to prayer meeting on Sunday nights at the end of the month and into the Ross home we go and maybe we really aren't very prepared to pray. 
And we don't realize that in gathering together in preparation for prayer corporately, we should have spent a good amount of time praying privately so that the Lord would tune our hearts and enable us to pray for things which concern his will and ultimately the good of his church and his people. And maybe we are not quite so prepared on Sundays when we come into the Lord's house. We've we've not really gotten a good night's sleep and we've not eaten the right things. And and maybe we haven't really discussed with our children what we were about to do. And maybe we haven't discussed with our families the attitude and the posture that we, t- we should take when we gather into the presence of God's people. We want to talk about all sorts of things about our weeks and about the things that interest us, but but the Lord's day and the gathering of God's people and our worship is to be is to be single focused. It, it, it is to be uh, locked in on the Lord Jesus Christ and the worship of God and the gathering ourselves in common confession and in worship and adoration of the Lord Jesus Christ. We should prepare our hearts to come into the presence of the living God. Truly and really, we should not be bantering about in the back, but we should be preparing ourselves, sitting down in our seats and soberly taking up our task of worshiping God. Giving ourselves to quiet prayer and taking our Bibles and reading, taking up the hymnal and looking at the songs for the day and preparing to sing them and looking for the tunes, thinking about the words and asking the Lord to help us, each of us. Preparation is something that Christians often fail at repeatedly. The way that we can prepare for the return of the Lord is to make certain that each day we are straightening up, raising our heads and looking unto the author and perfecter of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 28 gives us a posture of of trust. What is it? If Jesus says, prepare by lifting up your heads and, 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 and sitting straight up. And what this means is that we are essentially going above our circumstances and looking unto him who is our God and our Savior. It is to fundamentally take up the posture within our bodies of faith and of trust and of confidence in God, that our sovereign God is behind the events that trouble us in our flesh, that nothing is beyond his control, that when disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it, as Amos says? When these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads. When we see cataclysmic change in our world and the environment and the the very stars in the heavens themselves, we may confidently approach the unknown, for we know one thing. Our redemption is near us. The Lord is returning soon. The kingdom which cannot be shaken is coming. Heaven and earth will pass away before these words. The prediction from Christ, creation, creation is not eternal, nor will creation endure the refining, renewing judgment of God. But the words and predictions of Jesus Christ are eternal, more significant than the sensory realities of a physical creation. And when Jesus says, truly I say to you, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. 
He is saying his words are of greater accuracy than what your eyes tell you that you see right now in this room. That his words are more accurate than your feelings. That his words are far more accurate than your assumptions about your future and your the moments of distrust. We know one thing, our redemption is drawing near. The Lord is returning soon. Heaven and earth is passing away, but the words of Jesus Christ will never fail. The words of Christ and his predictions are eternal, more significant than anything else that we observe. Christ's words of prediction and promise are more enduring than the promises of a morally derelict president, the certainty of the created order, the assurances of a spouse or a loved one. We can trust his words, though the world is perishing, and we can see it, the world is perishing. His word, his promises will never fail. While the world and worldly people are terrified, the Christian is not shaken. But he or she lifts their heads expectantly, even when we feel the infirmities of our bodies, and acknowledge with each passing day that we are one day closer to physical death. We know that the kingdom of God is nearer to us day by day, and we to him, and soon we will see him as he is. What comforts us terrifies the unbeliever, and it should. The moment that the unbeliever is terrified, uncertain, unimaginably confused, hopeless, not knowing what these events are, not knowing how the world can break down as it is, not knowing how they can live in the midst of a world that continues to change, the believer is unmoved by upheaval. Unmoved by cataclysm. Unmoved by changes. Unmoved because we are coming into full possession of our inheritance in Jesus Christ. Unmoved because his kingdom that is coming is an answer to our many recitations of the Lord's Prayer. Haven't we prayed this for hundreds and hundreds of years as Christians? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we will be both completely sanctified and glorified with the Lord. Uh, Charles Wesley wrote a hymn, uh, Lo, He Comes with Clouds Descending. And in it, he has the position both of believers and unbelievers remarked there. Uh, First, we see, he says, Lo, He Comes with Clouds Descending. Once for every sinner slain, thousand, thousand saints attending, swell the triumph of His train. Alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. Christ reveals his endless reign. But this is the role of every unbeliever. This is their perspective. Every eye shall now behold him, robed in glorious majesty. Those who set at naught and sold him, pierced and nailed him to the tree, deeply wailing, deeply wailing, deeply wailing, shall their true Messiah see. Yea, amen, let all adore thee, high on thine eternal throne. Savior, take the power and the glory. Claim the kingdom as thine own. Alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. Thou shalt reign and thou alone. And so prepare, dear friends. Prepare. Stop 
stop being wasteful and lazy and foolish as one who is building a house upon the sand, but rather build your house upon the rock, the rock of Jesus Christ. And then you will be prepared. But if you're not thoughtful about your life, if you're thoughtless about the direction of your life and about your words and about your conduct and about your children and about your spouse and about the way that you handle yourself at work and about the ways in which you are spending your money, stewarding your resources, serving and living and loving God. And dear friends, you will be unprepared for the last great day. The second thing he commands in this passage is watch. Watch. He speaks of a fig tree and all the trees, and he says, as soon as they put forth leaves, you see it and know for yourselves that summer is now near. In the spring, we have seen the early beginnings of the spring where uh, all of a sudden, uh, all the trees bare of any foliage. We saw the the caps of, of new buds popping off of the trees and new leaves immediately. It seemed on the first hot weekend that all of a sudden everything had leaves. And we knew summer was here. And Jesus is rightly using that imagery. Summer is there. In other words, the, 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 the unfreezing of, of, of winter is done and the spring is past. All that was new and fresh and renewed. And now summer is here. And so he, he likens this period of mankind's existence to summer. As soon as they put forth leaves, you see it and you know for yourselves that summer is now near. So you also, when you see these things happening... Recognize that the kingdom of God is near. And so in verse 34, he says, in light of this, be on guard. In other words, watch. Watch yourselves. Not just watch yourselves, but watch your events. Watch the world in which you live. Watch all the things of God's sovereign plan unfolding all about you. Think deeply and take action about the way that you live. We watch others. We, we do. We know what it is to watch people and to be critical with a guiding, uh, well, with a, a watching critical uh, eye. We understand what it is to keep an eye on the motives of others and to assume their motives. And, and we understand what it is to watch very carefully their purchases and perhaps even to criticize how they spend money, to criticize what they do in their homes, criticize the various ways in which they They engage with the world and we are quick to offer correctives and counsel and perhaps even to gossip. And yet the Bible is full of commands for each of us as believers to watch, to watch ourselves, to watch the unfolding of God's providence and of his eternal plan to bring all things to the final consummation of his glory of his son. So he says, keep an eye on yourself. Keep an eye on your way of life. Be on guard. So what is a position of being on guard? It's such that there are dangers all about us. And being on guard means that we are, in fact, raising up the shield of faith. And we are, in fact, dealing with things which are opposed to us, prepared to meet those dangers and on guard against them. And he actually lists some of those things 
here in this passage this morning of dissipation, drunkenness, worries of life. He's talking about worry. He's talking about anxiety. He's talking about an encumbrance of care, an, an inordinate embrace of the material things at the neglect of our soul. In other words, we come to care far more about the world in which we live and the things that we have and the resources that we own and the people that are in our lives to such a degree that we neglect the care of our souls. And he says, be on guard. Watch. Keep an eye on yourself and your way of life. Why would he say that unless we are, he knows as the king of kings that we are prone to not watch over the conduct of our lives, that we are prone to not take great care about what we engage in. We often take care, good care of our bodies, but neglect our souls. He's dealing with the subject of addictions. Addictions to anything. Anything that, he mentions drunkenness here, but anything that inebriates or calms us. Perhaps we are prone to be addicted to anything other than the living God. Alcohol, drugs, sex, pornography, self-identity, and anything other than Jesus. Even unhealthy foods and inordinate amounts of food. Television, movies, addictive reading, things that make us feel good, that calm us down and relax us. And yet ultimately we have to ask, are these things taking place of a heart devoted to God? Are these things getting in the way of a heart devoted to God? Are these things inhibiting a life lived for God? J.C. Ryle says we are to live on our guard like men in an enemy's country. We are to remember that evil is about us and near us and in us and that we have to contend daily with a treacherous heart, an ensnaring world, and a busy devil. Remembering this, we must put on the whole armor of God and beware of spiritual drowsiness. As Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.6, let us watch and be sober. Simply stated, don't live like the world. There's nothing else to think about except the here and now. Don't think like that. Jesus is delivering this warning to his disciples. Again, we need to be reminded of that fact. In other words, he's saying, watch, be on guard. If he's saying that to his disciples, he's saying that to us. He's not saying this to the non-Christian crowd around him, but he's saying it to his disciples, watch. We must always be watching for his return. Always anticipating the return of Jesus Christ. Always asking the Lord, always entreating the Lord, Lord, come, come, Lord Jesus, quickly. But we must also be watching ourselves being on guard against our treacherous embrace of sin and of our satisfaction in this world. Our hearts are so very treacherous, are they not? We are so satisfied with this world to such an extent that we would leave off Jesus Christ if he did not have his grip upon us. Prone to leave the Lord, I I, I feel it, the hymnist sings. 
We must always be watching ourselves. And really, this idea of watchfulness is countercultural to the spirit of our age. Mindfulness. You ever hear of mindfulness? Mindfulness is something that is often embraced in medical circles or in meditative circles, broadly religious circles, even in the church. Mindfulness comes from Buddhism and, and its, its embrace of an inability to change one's circumstances. And so what you do is you sit and you observe with curiosity the events unfolding around you. Recognizing and not in any way pressing forward to change those circumstances, but accepting that this is what they are and curiously considering and meditating upon the significance of those events and your participation in them. It's a fatalistic curiosity. It's an observation of circumstances and my emotional and rational responses to them. Uh, What's happening outside of me? How am I responding internally? Don't take any step forward. Don't deal with what's happening inside of me. Fatalistic curiosity. No fear of God. No no responsibility for living. No take up your cross and follow Jesus Christ. No daily surrender to God. No use for take care. Be on guard. Watch yourselves. And certainly no hope in future expectation of what is yet to come. Mindfulness says, hmm, I'm curious about how I feel about these unfolding circumstances. The godly person says, I must prepare and I must watch and I must deal with my treacherous heart and serve the living king. Every Christian should eagerly watch and patiently wait for the Lord's return The early church used to express its faith continually by saying, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, or explicitly, the Lord come. Shouldn't we, shouldn't we often have on our lips, Lord come? The fact that we don't often say that is perhaps indicative of what's truest in our hearts, and that is that we are quite satisfied, quite content if the Lord doesn't come. Now, there are many things that the Lord has blessed us with in this world, grandchildren, children, friends, the the gathered church, life, the things that we enjoy in our homes, the vehicles that we have, the jobs that we are employed in, the ways in which we can take in the woods and the creation of God and rejoice in the beauty and the beach and all the various ways in which we rejoice in God and his good gifts. But isn't there something better to be with the Lord, to be with the Lord continually, to see the Lord, to see the Lord coming as he is? And the very last words of the Bible, the very last words of your New Testament, if you look at the Revelation chapter 22, verse 20, behold, I am coming soon. Do we believe that? Behold, I am coming soon. And do we long for that? What really would cause a Christian to cry out and say, yes, come Lord Jesus? Why why would a Christian say that when we live and 
It's only when the believer is fixed on his return, despairing of help from any other quarter of government or of humanity, a sense of the emptiness of this world, a mature despair of any hope in humanity, desire and longing for the kingdom of God which cannot be shaken, and longing for and recognizing that far better is the immediate and direct rule of Jesus Christ than any other government. This is the hope of the believer, that the perfect, just, right, glorious, beautiful, wonderful Prince of Peace would rule over us and establish his justice and bring us into his eternal kingdom. The third thing and final thing in this passage is pray. Pray. In the very next chapter, in chapter 22, Jesus will be in the Garden of Gethsemane. And there he'll be with the disciples. And it goes a little bit beyond them. And he's praying and contending with the Father and crying out to the Lord, to God. And then he comes back and he finds the disciples sleeping. And what does he say to them? Watch and pray. The exact same statement here. Be on guard. Verse 36. But keep on the alert at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Stay awake, praying. It's your sacred duty to pray. There's a proneness to sleepiness and a thoughtless living and a failure in prayer. To go about your day and endure through various circumstances and changes of life without having lifted up your needs to God. To neglect prayer. Sinclair Ferguson is speaking about the church in comparison to the old churches of years ago and of missionary endeavors and how God's people prayed for and rejoiced in prayer and gave themselves to fervent prayer. He says, today, by contrast, the vast majority of churches have abandoned corporate prayer. Nobody denies the importance of corporate prayer. It's just that they don't do it. Most churches, most people neglect practice. And then he says this, if these words seem exaggerated, try two tests. First, ask your friends, does your church believe in corporate prayer? If so, what percentage of the membership meets to pray? Second, whenever you visit a church, check the church's worship bulletin list of weekly activities taking place and count the number of times prayer appears. He says, I I think you will find the results illuminating and perhaps disturbing. A question haunts me. What if a litmus test of the spiritual condition of our churches is our growth in praying together as the early church did so often? A concern burdens me, he says, having come to corporate prayer meetings become so socially awkward and embarrassing Do we lack courage or time or are we paralyzed by guilt or past failure? Surely the Lord is able to help us overcome such obstacles. So it is not out of this. So it is out of this burden and with empathy that I write to encourage you to do one simple thing. This is Sinclair. I didn't say easy, but one simple thing with a potential to transform your life and congregation and city and state. All that is required is some discipline and perhaps a little courage. Here it is. Resolve to attend, unless providentially hindered, one or other of your church's weekly prayer times. We have prayer following Bible study on Wednesday night. We have prayer uh, beginning Bible study. We have 
I ask at the end of Bible studies if there are prayer requests, and sometimes if there are a lot of prayer requests, I ask others to participate in those prayers. We pray on Sunday mornings prior to service. There are women at the back uh, in the prayer room praying at 10 a.m. every Sunday. There are elders praying before the service in that back room in the nursery over there at about 10.20, lifting up the, prayer, the, the, the worship service to the Lord. There are many instances of prayer. We pray once a month corporately together, gathered, mixed crowd in the Ross home at the end of the month. We will be doing that next week. <clears throat> prayer. Resolve to attend unless providentially hindered one or other of your church's weekly prayer times. So prayer is vital for the life of the believer. It changes us. It changes our disposition. It, it, it enables us to submit to the will and mind of God. It brings all of our needs. And in prayer, we are acknowledging God uh, to, to God before God that we are immensely needy and I'll tell you, it isn't until we begin to pray that we begin to recognize our great need of God. When we engage in the exercise of prayer, we begin more and more to deepen in our conviction, oh, how I need the Lord. And more and more, we develop more and more that that spirit of expectation and of hope in Jesus. As we pray, we experience more and more of an assurance of our standing in Jesus Christ. And we experience more and more of a more highly estimating the Lord Jesus Christ and his value to us and our love for him. And we become more and more aware of the love of God for us. Prayer encourages, prayer develops the relationship of the believer with our God. And prayer is the means by which God has used and stated and commanded and directed us to make known to us our needs. And prayer is the means by which we are we experience the forgiveness of our sins and come to embrace that forgiveness and pardon. How can we neglect prayer? And so let us take Christ's words at face value this morning. Prepare. And watch and pray. Let's pray.